following audio is from Crossroads Church in West Ossipee, New Hampshire. For more information about Crossroads Church, you can go to www.crossroadsossipee.com. We're going to continue our work in 1 Timothy for now. In chapter 4 this morning, uh, verses 6 through 11, which is on page 992 in the Pew Bibles, if that's helpful to you. 1 Timothy 4. And these verses we're going to look at this morning are a continuation of the Apostle Paul's instructions to Timothy um, about being aware of and warning the church of false teaching. It really should be connected with verses 1 through 5. So as we read it this morning, uh, I'm going to start at the beginning of chapter 4 and read verses 1 through 11. But we're going to focus on verse 6 through 11 after. Just remember that uh, chapters and verses and headings and even paragraphs are not inspired by the Holy Spirit. Um, they're, they're products of interpretation, um, so we don't have to be a slave to them in our, in our study. They're there to help us, but anyway. So we look at 1 Timothy chapter 4, start of verse 1. Now the Spirit expressly says that in later times some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and teachings of demons through the insincerity of liars whose consciences are seared, who forbid marriage and require abstinence from foods that God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. For everything created by God is good, and nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving. For it is made holy by the word of God and prayer. If you put these things before the brothers, you will be a good servant of Christ Jesus, being trained in the words of the faith and of the good doctrine that you have followed. Have nothing to do with irreverent, silly myths. Rather, train yourself for godliness. For while bodily training is of some value, godliness is of value in every way, as it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. This saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance. For to this end we toil and strive, because we have our hopes set on the living God, who is the Savior of all people, especially of those who believe. Command and teach these things. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your spirit that uh, quickens the word, brings it alive to us, to our hearts. And I pray, Lord, as we examine it this morning, that your spirit would do that work, bring your words alive to us, and may your message sing deep in our hearts so that our lives are changed and our thinking is transformed. We entrust this work to you, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. Hmm. Um, the Lord is funny. Sometime, uh, I'll tell you a story later. Um, m- most of my adult life and into my late adolescence has been plagued with one question. And I'm willing to bet, that's what this is funny, I'm willing to bet that I am not the only one that has struggled with this same question. I'd be willing to bet 
that every one of us has wrestled with this question in one form of another, one form or another over the course of our lives. And it's a simple question. What am I supposed to do? <laughs> what am I supposed to do with my life? What what should I be about? What should I be pursuing? Because I'm not sure if you know this. If you've been blessed by the Lord with a, with a life longer than 10 or 15 minutes, you begin to wonder, what is it that I'm supposed to be doing right now? Um, and for some of us, this will last a long time. Um, now, I don't know if you are all on uh, Facebook or if you are partakers of the Internet in any way, but my Facebook feed seemed to be full of pseudo-patriotism. Like, if you're an American, you will think this way. If you're a patriot, you will act like this. But then someone will say, if you're a patriot or if you're an American, you will think completely the opposite of what this person says. And the trouble I have with that is we tend to define our Christianity by our patriotism. And we go for, um, we try to find the truth in our founding documents as a country. Now, I'm not a very politically minded person. I find all of these conversations irritating and annoying and not helpful. But sometimes... Perhaps we allow the Declaration of Independence to tell us what we should be doing with our lives. And here's what I mean by that. The Declaration, written by Thomas Jefferson, actually edited by other people, if you, never mind. This, uh, one of our founding documents says, we hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal, that they are endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights, that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. They seem like lofty ideals, don't they? Seem pretty good. But unfortunately, they are not terribly specific. But we are more than just Americans. We are Christians. We are those who belong to the Lord Jesus Christ. And we operate on a different set of principles than the rest of the world. And you can argue, if you want, about whether or not Thomas Jefferson was a good Christian or not. I don't care. It makes no difference to me. We as Christians operate on a different set of principles and shouldn't our pursuits be more closely aligned with those principles? But what does that look like? You're still wondering, what am I supposed to be doing? And I think the secret is found in our text this morning. The question has already been answered before I asked. Young Timothy was sent to Ephesus to set the church in order, left behind by Paul, his job was to rein in the church in matters of doctrine and to chase away false teaching and chase off the fierce wolves that twisted words to get people to follow after them instead of the Lord Jesus. 
And as we looked at last week, Paul warned Timothy that in the times to come, people would rise up and teach things that were inspired by demons and deceitful spirits to enslave people with practices that are not pleasing to the Lord, requiring people to give up things that God's created and were given to us for our good and were to be received with thanksgiving. And Paul says in verse 6 that Timothy will be a good servant of Christ Jesus if he puts these things before the brothers and sisters. Now, ladies, if you were looking at this with us and said, if you put these things before the brothers, you'd be a good servant. And you think, what about us ladies? I'll give you another Greek lesson. The Greek word is adelphoi, which means siblings, brothers and sisters. So it's not just teach the guys. And the ladies, we'll tell you about it when we get home. That's not, not it at all. We are together in this as brothers and sisters in the Lord. Another word that is confusing in some translations, if you have something other than the English Standard Version, uh, your Bible may say you will be a good minister if you put these things before the brethren. Uh, a minister, what does that mean? Um, it might not say servant there. And although minister and servant are the same Greek word, they both mean the same thing. But when we hear the word minister, we tend to think of somebody else, not just a, not like a regular person, a minister, a pastor, a priest, whatever. I talked to a couple of people at the baseball game yesterday, and they asked, well, what do you do for a living way up in Sender Usby, New Hampshire, because we're in Saugus, Massachusetts. And I said, I'm a pastor. And of course, they're hearing my accent for the first time, so they're trying to figure out what. <laughs> I said, what, what again? I said, pastor, preacher. Oh, a minister. Uh-huh. Yeah. Okay, sure. Yes, you know what I mean. When we, we confuse this, when we read this and say, you'll be a good minister. So this is clearly a word just to pastors. But it's not. It's a good servant. It's the right word. I appreciate the ESV for getting it right there. We are all called to be servants. We are all servants of the Lord Jesus and of one of other, uh, one another. This instruction here is not just for pastors. It's for all of us. We don't live in the age where the word of God is only available to the experts and only written in a language that the clergy could understand. The Word of God is available to all of us. It is more available to all of us than it has ever been. And though we are not all teachers, we can all represent the truth of God's Word in the face of falsehood. And the opportunities for that are seemingly endless. And I'm sure that at least half of you this morning have more than 50 different translations, English translations of the Bible in your pocket, in your phone. It's all available to us. Commentaries and sermons. Um, Ken and I were talking about this this morning. I asked about commentaries on the book of Luke, and I said, well, you should look up Ray Stedman's website, and you can hear every sermon he ever preached in Palo Alto, California, starting in 1979, all the way up through. It's amazing. And it's on the world wide webs. So look it up. 
Verse 6 says, if you put these things before the brothers and sisters, you will be a good servant of Christ Jesus, being trained in the words of the faith and of the good doctrine that you have followed. Now, Timothy, though he was a regular person like you or I, did have a very special story. Here's a young man who had given his life to the Lord, who was raised by a Christian mother and grandmother, and got to walk and talk in person with the Apostle Paul and receive instruction directly from him. It seems like a fellow like that would have a lot of advantages over us, don't you think? I mean, he got to hear the words. <laughs> hmm. His training in the words of the faith and good doctrine came straight from the Apostle Paul. If only ours could come straight from the Apostle Paul. Huh. Who wrote this letter? I forget. Oh, same guy. We have the words as well. He may have heard Paul's words with his own ears, but do you know what he didn't have? He didn't have the words of Matthew or Mark or Luke, John, Peter, James, and Jude. He only had the words of the Apostle Paul. The complete words of faith and good doctrine are right here in front of us in God's Word, the Bible. And all we have to do is open it up and read it. Maybe open the app and read it. Some of the older translations use the word nourished when speaking about the words of the faith and good doctrine. Nourished. Which reminds me of the saying we were just talking about again this morning. You are what you eat, so be careful eating lobster. Just saying. This is a very true statement. You are what you eat. When we feed on the Word of God daily, things start to change in us. There's a lot of things vying for our attention daily. Not all good for us. Paul fills out this picture in verse 7 with a warning about the kind of food that we feed ourselves with and also gives us the answer to our original question, what am I supposed to be doing? I think this is, this would be a great fortune cookie. Have nothing to do with irreverent silly myths such as fortune cookies. Rather, train yourself for godliness. He literally says, refuse to pay attention to worldly old wives tales. That's the literal Greek. Old wives tales. That's the literal translation. And though that sounds kind of funny, it forces me to wonder how much of what we practice and preach under the banner of Christianity, or even more specifically, American evangelicalism, how much of that isn't really just a silly old wives' tale? How much of what we do and think and practice is really just irreverent superstition? You ever think about that? There is only one way to find out if there are things in our practice of our faith are really just silly old wives' tales. We must measure everything that we do and think and say by the Word of God. That's the only way to find out. I will give you an example from my own personal experience. I don't want to, but I will. 
This morning, as I prepared for service, it's 80 degrees inside my house with 150% humidity. And I put on my pants and got my shirt on. I'm ready for church. And I sat in my living room for a moment, drinking coffee and sweating like all get out. And my beautiful wife comes and says, you're wearing pants to church? You're not going to wear shorts? What's wrong with you? I I have to preach the word this morning. I can't wear shorts. This is an irreverent and silly myth. I am much more comfortable, believe me, now than I was then. I did not take my shoes off, which was tempting, but I didn't. Yeah, you're welcome. (laughs) This is exactly what I'm talking about. Is a dress code part of pleasing God? It's an irreverent and silly myth. You have to bring your best to God, and that means a suit and tie and discomfort and a long dress and high heels and perfume. Nope, it's not in the Word of God. You want to dress that way? Go ahead. You're comfortable that way? Do it. We're going to make fun of you, but you're comfortable. It's fine. But this is the exactly exactly the sort of thing that is permeated to American Christianity, that you must dress this way, you must act this way, in order to be a good Christian. And it's not in God's Word. I think it's important to measure these things. You're all wearing shorts. Why should I be any different? Because you're a minister, that's why. Yeah. Mm, high heels and perfume. Yeah, absolutely. I, if you haven't figured this out, I am a machinist that occasionally preaches the word. That's it. Hmm. I don't remember what I was talking about. Silly myths and old wives' tales. Our actions, our attitudes, the way we dress, our political stances, our indulgences, are the things that we think are taboo, all must be measured by the Word of God so that our training is in godliness, not in the traditions of religious superstitions. This is very important. Have nothing to do with irreverent, silly myths. Rather, train yourself for godliness. For while bodily training is of some value, godliness is of value in every way, as it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance. So what's our question? What am I supposed to be doing? And the answer? Training yourself for godliness. That's what we're supposed to be doing. And whether that means you cut down trees or you type on a computer all day or you run a machine or you run a hotel or you serve uh, ribs in a restaurant, what we are all to be doing is training ourselves in godliness because it has value not just in this life but in the life to come. Paul often uses the picture of an athlete in his letters to illustrate this very point. The athlete trains their body to win the race, to win the wrestling match, to win the prize. But it's always for a prize that fades. In first century Greece, 
the athletes won a crown made of laurel branches. Just a branch from a tree, twisted into a crown. That's where we get the expression, resting on your laurels. So I won the crown last year, and I still have it, I can show you. But what about this year? The beauty of those crowns is that those green leaves and flowers would fade and wither. A reminder to keep training for the next race, to win another fresh one, not just rest on the old one. It's all dried out, and if you touch it now, all the leaves fall off. Our baseball team won a great big trophy, won a championship. It's awesome. And we were very excited and carried it around on our shoulders, and now it's taking up space on my kitchen table, and I'm sick of it. (laughs) And while all that physical training has some value in improving the quality of life for the individual who is dedicated enough to pursue it, just like those crowns, the benefits are temporary, and the glory fades. Landfills are full of old trophies whose glory has been forgotten. But training for godliness is a different story. Godliness has value in every way as it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. Godliness is the whole of practical piety. It encompasses knowledge and reverence and affection and dependence and submission and gratitude and obedience to the Lord Jesus. Paul wrote in Philippians chapter 3, verse 12 through 15, he says, Not that I have already obtained this or am already perfect, but I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own. But one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Let those of us who are mature think this way. Faith and godliness are funny things. Having faith in Jesus Christ... Trusting Him with your past and your present and your future. That's how we receive forgiveness. It's how uh, we get born again. It's really how we survive. Not just this life, but gain entrance in the one to come. But godliness is different. If faith is how we survive, godliness is how we thrive. There's a difference between Yes, I can build a fire and cook some food over it. That's the difference between that and living that way all the time and living in your house now, where it's hot like this, so you turn on the air conditioner to cool it off and you get comfortable and you can go to the cupboard and get a bowl of cereal, something like that, not like a caveman. Real food, Cheerios, you know? Hmm. The pursuit of godliness is how we train for life. Not just this life. Not just here on earth. But in God's eternal kingdom forever. Again, godliness is the whole of practical piety. It's what this whole Christian life is all about. 
it encompasses knowledge and reverence and affection and dependence and submission and gratitude and obedience and worship to the Lord Jesus. That's what it's all about. But training in godliness takes work. Just like training for an athletic event, it takes practice. And like the sign on the front of Green Mountain Furniture reminded us for the last few weeks, don't wish for what you won't work for. I wish to be mature as a Christian. I wish to be more like Jesus. Huh. Well, that's good. What are you going to do about it? I'm going to keep wishing until it happens. Just like playing the lottery. I wish I win the lottery. Have you bought a ticket? No, I'm keep wishing. <laughs> this is foolish. Hmm. Don't wish for spiritual maturity. Don't wish for godliness if you're not willing to work for it. Now, this takes partnership with the Holy Spirit. We don't do it on our own. We do need help. Our salvation comes at zero cost to us. We bring nothing but our sin to the table. Forgiveness costs us nothing and costs Jesus everything. We are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. Our forgiveness is a free gift. You get it? Godliness, however, takes work. But the rewards are so worth it takes a secret ingredient to grow in godliness. Effort. Paul wrote in verse 10, For to this end we toil and strive, because we have our hopes set on the living God, who is the Savior of all people, especially those who believe. Command and teach these things. Just like the athlete works hard and agonizes in their training for the goal of lifting up that trophy or putting on that crown of laurels, we are called to work hard and to agonize in our training in godliness because our hope, our confident expectation is not just some empty cup but rather an encounter with the living God that lasts forever. We get to be with the Lord not just in this life, but also in the one to come. C.S. Lewis wrote, If you read history, you will find that the Christians who did most for the present world were precisely those who thought the most of the next. It is since Christians have largely ceased to think of the other world that they have become so ineffective in this one. Training in godliness, pursuing spiritual maturity, is simply training for when we get home. This, is, this, this life is preparation for eternal life in God's kingdom. The word of God gives us positive doctrine so that we know what we must believe and where we are going, and it also exposes false doctrine so that we won't be seduced and led astray by false teaching. But we can't just settle for knowledge. You can memorize the word if you want. What a wonderful thing. You can memorize the, the, uh, the Babe Ruth rule book too if you want. 
then you'll know all the rules. Wonderful. But knowledge is not where it stops. We can't just settle for knowledge, though it is where we start. Don't get me wrong. We start there by learning what God's Word really says. But as Ray Stedman said, it's, it's what you do based on what you know that makes the difference. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that your word does have the answer to the question, what are we supposed to do? What are we supposed to do in this life? And I thank you that the answer encompasses more than just what kind of job should we have or what kind of house should we live in or where should that house be. But the answer encompasses everything in this life and the life to come. So I pray, Lord, that we would all be inspired to do the work that is necessary to grow in godliness, to know your word and to do what it says, and that we would all grow as disciples of Jesus Christ. Lord, if there's anyone here who does not know you, that has not begun this journey with you, I pray, Lord, they'd simply turn to you in faith, and give you their heart and accept your forgiveness so that they too might grow in godliness and we would all be preparing for life in your eternal kingdom. And we look forward to that day where the clouds roll back and you return to collect your bride, the church, and we get to spend eternity with you in your presence. What a day that will be. But until then, Lord, help us to do the work that's necessary. Give us the strength. Wake us up early in the morning if necessary. Remind us where we set our Bible last year. That we might take it and read and grow in grace and strength. We love you, Lord. And we thank you. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. If you would like to participate in the mission of Crossroads Church through financial support, checks can be mailed to Crossroads Church, Post Office Box 576, West Ossipee, New Hampshire, 03890.